You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open to our scripture readings for this morning. We have two of them. In the first place, we're going to read from Luke 12, verses 13 to 20. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. We also turn to James chapter 3, at verse 13. And we will read up to 4, verse 17, to the end of chapter 4. And we find our text in verses 13 to 17 of James chapter 4. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now with verse 13, we come to our text. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. May God bless the reading of his word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, here we are at the beginning of another year. A few hours ago we flipped our calendars over to 2006. And I'm sure many of us have made some plans for this new year. Those who are graduating from high school in June They're thinking ahead to the rest of their lives, university, or college, a job, so on. The brothers and sisters who are younger still are are looking forward to getting into the next grade, maybe looking forward to getting a a better seat on the bus. Of course, those of us who are older, we also have our plans. People think, this is the year that I start to get ahead financially, get ahead with my mortgage, Get the vehicle paid off. Start saving some cash. 2006 is the year that things start looking up. We all make our plans for the new year. We're all thinking ahead right now to what this new year is going to bring. The young men think that this is the year they're going to pop the question, start making some serious plans for marriage. The young women perhaps look forward to getting a diamond ring We all like to make our plans. That's a good thing. There's nothing at all wrong with making plans. The question is always, with what attitude or with what outlook do we make our plans? Do we do it with the belief that, as we read in Proverbs 16, verse 9, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps? Or do we make our plans without regard for God, for His rule over our lives and the universe and everything? That's really the the question that gets put before us by our text this morning, the beginning of a new year. You, who are bought with the blood of the Lamb, 
What's your attitude towards the future? How do you look at it? And it appears that believers haven't always had the attitude that they should. James saw this in some of the congregations who were spread out among the nations. He either saw or heard reports about those who claimed to be believers, but they were living in such a way that they had flagrant disregard for God. They didn't really acknowledge His rule in their lives. These believers need to be shaken from their complacency, from their arrogance. They needed to see that if they've been redeemed by Christ, if they've truly been brought into the covenant of grace, then there are obligations which go along with all that. There's the call to wholeness. That's why the Holy Spirit moves James to write this letter. If we look back at chapter 1, verse 4, it says there that perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's kind of the theme of the book of James. Justification... Regeneration has to lead on to sanctification. And that includes cultivating a Christian attitude to the future. So this morning I preached to you God's word with this theme. The Holy Spirit calls us to cultivate a Christian attitude to the future. And we'll see that such an attitude, first of all, disdains foolish pride. And then second of all, embraces the wisdom of faith. Already noted that James is addressing believers in this text. Believers in the Lord Jesus. At least some of these believers appear to have been merchants. It's pretty obvious from the text that these merchants were able to travel without any difficulty. So they were well off, very affluent. They would be today what we would call entrepreneurs. They were the wealthy believers that we read about already in the first chapter of this epistle. Now these merchant types in the congregation were reputed to have a certain type of attitude. And this attitude would be demonstrated in statements like James quotes in verse 13. Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. This kind of statement showed that these merchant types, these entrepreneurs, they believed themselves to be in control of their lives. They decided for themselves where they will go, when they will go, how long they will stay, and what they're going to do there. We've decided that we're going to go, and that's that. Our lives are in our hands, and God doesn't fit in our plans. He may be out there somewhere, He's certainly nice to have around if you need some extra help. But really, he is irrelevant to what I am going to do tomorrow. Keep in mind that this is being said, this is being thought by those who confess to belong to Christ. You know, this amounts to practical atheism. You know, there's out-and-out atheism, which doesn't believe in God at all and, and strives for some kind of consistency. But then there's also a practical atheism, where people say that they believe in God, people may even say that they believe in Christ, but then their lives 
are entirely inconsistent with their belief. For all practical purposes, their lives are indistinguishable from the lives of atheists. Believing in God doesn't make any difference in their lives. That's what's going on with these merchants. And it's these people that the Holy Spirit, through James, is telling to to listen up, wake up. They have to do that because their attitude is one of pride. And that's something that cannot be tolerated. James already brought his readers down to earth in in verses 6 and 7, where he says, Submit yourselves to God. He says it again in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then one more time in, in verse 12, with a little bit of a different nuance, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? All of these are, are calls to humility. And humility is an essential component of the Holy Spirit's call to wholeness, the Spirit's call to maturity in this epistle. And with our text, we find more of the same call to humility, although it's worked out in a different way. There is pride among these merchants claiming to be believers. And that pride needs to be rebuked. So James does that exact thing in verse 14 of our text. Our translation says, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You know, that's not really a a clear representation of the original. Really what the text says is, You, by your very nature, don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You, by your very nature, don't even know what will happen tomorrow. In other words, you're a man. You're a mere creature who can't look ahead, can't say what's going to happen. Quite bluntly, you're not God. You are the creature, not the Creator. And isn't that a message that's just as valid, just as relevant for today? Back when we lived up north, there was a story in the the local paper about a young man. He was going around to all the the public schools. I suppose this kind of thing happens more often. This young man was telling the young people, giving them a motivational message, telling them that they were all that they need. They have to be strong in themselves. They have it in themselves. You don't need drugs or alcohol, but you also don't need God. You don't need religion. All you need is you to make it in this world. Brothers and sisters, isn't this the lie that was told from the very beginning? Adam and Eve, get up on your hind legs. Forget about God. You don't need Him. You're strong in yourself. You shall be as God. Temptation to this kind of thinking is always there. It's also there in the church. And that's why we need to have a humble appraisal of who we really are. We need to see ourselves as creatures who are dependent on every, for everything upon our Creator. That means that we also have to have an accurate knowledge of who God is. He's the one in control, the sovereign God. He's not some kind of vague higher power that we determine for ourselves. He's not a clockmaker who wound up the universe and, and then just sits back and lets it run 
takes a coffee break, goes for a nap. He's not some deity who, who takes risks, who's, who's subject to time and chance. He's not a God who has his hands tied to do anything about what is evil in this world. Well, Scripture reveals to us that God is the omnipotent. That means all-powerful. The omnipotent ruler of the universe. What he decrees comes to pass. It must, because he alone is God. There is nothing above him. There is nothing beyond him. So you can say what you want. But if the Lord calls your number tomorrow, your time is up. You can make all your plans with whatever attitude you want, but the Lord brings everything to pass. He ordains it, and He also works it out. This is further clarified when James asks the question, What is your life? Who are you? What is your stature in life, the universe, and everything? You can have your own answer to that question, but the right answer is, comes from the Scriptures. And James gives that answer. He says you're just like some steam coming out of a kettle, a mist. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. You try to hold on to it, try to bottle it up. Unless you're a pretty sharp scientist, it's pretty well impossible. That steam or vapor is there one minute, and then and the next minute it's gone. And in the big picture, the big scheme of things, that's the extent of our existence. Your life will come and go. And there's nothing you can say about it, nothing you can do about it. You may think you're in control of your life, but you're deluding yourself. This is pure foolishness, foolish pride. You can pretend that God doesn't have any say over your life, but if you do that, you're just being a fool. And your foolish, foolishness gets accentuated even more if you say that you believe in Christ. And so what is the Holy Spirit's message to these foolish merchants? He says to them, smarten up. This way is the way of foolish pride. The fool doesn't fear the Lord. The fool doesn't respect the Lord for who he is. The fool applauds along being self-deluded. This shouldn't be the way of those who have been bought with Christ's precious blood. Christ didn't suffer and die for those who think that they can get along nicely without God in their daily affairs. The cross doesn't stand for so-called Sunday Christians. Those who follow the way of sinful pride are not on the way of wholeness and maturity. Rather, they are what James would call double-minded They have two minds. And the Spirit emphasizes this even further in verse 16. Literally, the text says there that these merchants are boasting in their arrogances. They boast and brag, and in so doing, they add insult to injury. This is the height of conceit. These people just don't carry on like this undercover, trying to cover up what they're doing, having some sense of shame about what they're saying and what they're thinking. Instead, they're very open about their pride. They even they brag about it. They say, here I am. I'm a Christian, but I don't need God. And I don't care if the whole world hears it. 
I don't need God except maybe on Sunday or maybe in an emergency in my life. Isn't that something? Maybe they even joke about it. The creature is sticking his nose up at the Creator, is refusing to acknowledge the truth that God is sovereign. And perhaps an illustration will show how foolish this really all is. It's an illustration that was used a long time ago by one of my teachers, someone from whom I've learned a lot. He was on a train traveling from one city to another. And as he he sat on the train, he looked across the aisle and he saw a young girl and her father. And this young girl, who was maybe one or two years old, was sitting on her father's lap. And she kept slapping her father in the face. Well, without her father's lap holding her up, the little girl could not have slapped her father in the face. And so it is with these conceited merchants in our text. Without God's rule over their lives, without God being there, sustaining them, holding them up from day to day, giving them life, breath, and everything, they couldn't even make these arrogant statements. The very fact of their lives, their ongoing existence, betrays the utter foolishness of what they're saying and the attitude that they have in carrying out their daily lives. Now this is not only utterly foolish, as if it was just some kind of an intellectual thing, it's also wicked. This is the clear message of the parable that we read from Luke 12. What this rich man did was not only foolish, but it was also morally culpable. You could blame him for what he did. It was wrong. It was wicked. God calls him a fool and then he demands his life from him. Judgment waits for those who make all their plans for themselves and they put God to the side. That's what James says as well. All such boasting is evil. In other words, God sees it and it makes him very angry. And so brothers and sisters... The Holy Spirit is teaching us here in this text that we have to disdain, we have to despise this foolish type of thinking, even as God despises it. And as we stand on the threshold of this new year, the year of our Lord, 2006, we can't get the idea into our heads that we are masters of our own destinies. Such thinking is foolish. Such thinking is wicked. We were purchased with a heavy price, nothing less than the life of God's own beloved Son. And since there was such a heavy price, there is also a heavy call for us to live in thankfulness. And thankful living means taking that pride and arrogance and throwing it out the window. Also in the way we live, the way we plan. Brothers and sisters, you can make your plans for 2006. In fact, you have to do so. A wise man plans ahead. But make your plans with a Christian attitude which embraces the wisdom of faith. And that's our second point this morning. If we, if we look through the epistle of James, take a little bit of a survey, we find that wisdom is an undercurrent everywhere in this epistle. At the beginning, in, in chapter 1, James already commands us, if any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. 
And this makes perfect sense in relation to the theme of maturity or wholeness that we have in this letter. And I say that it makes sense because wisdom is indispensable to that wholeness, that maturity to which the Spirit is calling those who believe in Christ. This is even more clear when we see that James is very familiar with the book of Proverbs. Verse 14 seems to be an allusion to Proverbs 27, verse 1, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. The Holy Spirit, working through James, wants these merchants and, by extension, also us, all believers, to reject the path of foolishness, to embrace the path of wisdom, to follow it. And that wisdom has its starting point in faith. We learn clearly from passages such as Psalm 111, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Faith in God and in His only Son to die for the sins of His people. If you want to be wise, that's where you have to begin. And what is wisdom? When the Bible, true wisdom is knowing the right thing to do or think in every circumstance of life. It's the application of divine truth to human experience. And that true wisdom is not something that can exist in isolation from true faith. James wants his readers to reject foolish pride, to follow the way of humble submission to God. We see that in verses 6 and 7. And so instead of making prideful boasts about what you will do and the fact that you will do it apart from God, one ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this. If it is the Lord's will, we will do that. You see, it's one thing to admit that your life is transitory. Even unbelievers will admit that all we are is dust in the wind. That admission is not enough. You also have to admit that God is the one in control. He's sovereign. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to bring us here in our text. He wants to to bring us to the way of wisdom. It seems simple. Instead of foolishly living without recognizing God, just say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. But we can bring several questions. Maybe you've already had these in your mind. Do we need to say, if it is the Lord's will, every time we make a plan, every time we talk about what we're going to do, we always say, if it is the Lord's will? Do we always need to add some pious words to be obedient to our text? Well, there are a couple of things that we need to look at to answer this. First of all, we have to see that our text is not concerned with outward appearances. Rather, it's the attitude that the Holy Spirit is addressing through James. What lives in the heart is what's most important. And of course, that will have an effect on what appears outwardly. It can't be any different. A good tree cannot help but produce good fruit. So that's the first thing we have to take into account. And in the second place, there are many places in the Bible, many examples, where our Lord Jesus Himself and also the apostles, they don't follow this command. 
And this only underlines what is part of the message of our text. Have a right attitude toward the future. And the fruit will fall into place. And that attitude ought to be one of humble submission. Believers have to recognize, they have to acknowledge God's ruling role in their lives. And if we recognize that and live accordingly, then it should also be clear to others around us. Believers have to show in their lives, both before God and our neighbor, that God is in complete control. We ought to have the attitude that if only if God wills it, will it come to pass. And we're not forbidden to make plans, but we make our plans in a conditional way. And that's why in the church you often hear or read the abbreviations DV. DV stands for the Latin words Deo Volente. Deo Volente means God willing. And we don't have to add that every time we say something or, or make a plan. However, our attitude should always be clear. There can be no boastful plans or speaking about the future. We can indicate a lot about our attitude in our way of speaking. We can meekly speak of doing something in hope and say, I'm really hoping to do this in the coming year. And certainly on occasions, it wouldn't hurt to explicitly speak of God's will. That can also be a powerful witness to others, showing that, that we don't have our lives in our own hand, but that we do embrace the wisdom of faith. However, we have to beware of mere formalism, going through the motions, because doing that could also lead to a blaspheming of God's name. His name is holy, and we have to be careful with it. The attitude is the most important. And when the attitude is right, then the fruits of that right attitude will be there to see. It must be clear, most of all to God Himself, who looks into every heart, that we see ourselves for who we really are. That we see God for who He really is. That would be the approach of humility. And so also, our plans for 2006 have to be made with Deo Valente, God willing in our minds and engraved upon our hearts. It's not a given that we will do this or that tomorrow or next year. God is in control on His holy throne. You may plan, but don't be surprised. Don't be disheartened when things turn out differently than you planned. If you approach the new year with the humble wisdom of faith, then it won't be that way. We all wish, wish each other a blessed new year. We did that last night. Many of us are doing that today as well. But there's the real possibility that the coming year will bring difficulties. At the coming year, God will bring us blessings disguised in unfathomable mystery. All holiday cheer aside, let's be realistic. There will be disappointments for some of us. There may be mourning and grief at the loss of a loved one. You may lose your job. Maybe you'll have problems in your marriage or in your family in the new year. Perhaps there will be struggles with depression. What then? 
What good will foolish pride do you when those kinds of difficulties come? But brothers and sisters, if you embrace the wisdom of faith, you also have the means, the tools to handle that any, disappo- any disappointments that God brings into your life. If you humble yourself and you trust in God, you trust in His goodness, His fatherly love for you, then you will also know that even though a situation is so hard and so difficult, the Lord is always there for us and with us. Because He's our loving Father. He never lets go. And so, brothers and sisters, resolve to embrace that wisdom of faith. Make that your New Year's resolution. And thereby cultivate a Christian attitude to the new year. The Holy Spirit will give us the strength we need to do these things. same Holy Spirit reveals one more thing in the last verse of our text. After all this, he wants to make something clear about ignorance. If you've heard what James has been saying in this text and you don't put it into practice, that's okay. This is all just optional for believers. Is that what's being said in verse 17? I don't think so. Instead, we're told that it's sin if you do that. If you go on claiming ignorance then you're storing up God's wrath for yourself. You know, there are sins of commission. Sins of commission are where we sin by doing something that's wrong. Then there are also sins of omission, where we sin by failing to do something right. The Spirit through James is here speaking of a sin of omission. James has outlined how to have a Christian attitude to the future. He has shown us the right thing to do, the right attitude to have. And with knowledge of the right comes the responsibility to do it. And that's a teaching we find elsewhere in the Bible. For instance, Christ teaches us that in in Luke 12. And so what's the end of the matter? You've heard the right thing from the Holy Spirit. You've heard the call to cultivate a Christian attitude to the future. Now go and do it. Do it out of thankfulness for the riches of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. We need a Christian attitude to the future for 2006. That's what we need, not just for today and for this year, but for the rest of our lives. So fellow believers, recipients of God's grace in Christ, renounce yourself. Renounce your foolish pride. Embrace the wisdom which begins with the fear of the Lord. That's the way to a blessed new year in 2006. Make your plans for this new year. Make them for tomorrow, but do so with that Christian attitude which acknowledges God's sovereignty. Remember what James says in verse 6. Good text to memorize. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So with the attitude of faith, let's all have a blessed new year, growing in such a way that we may indeed be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, living as sacrifices of thanksgiving for God's inestimable gift of His Son. Amen. 
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.